Chapter 18, Part 1 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 18, Part 1. The Conquest of the Far East. Section 1. Hyrcania, Aria, Bactria, Sogdiana. The murderers of Darius fled. Bessus to Bactria, Narbazanes to Hyrcania, and the direction of their flight determined the course of Alexander's advance. He could not pursue Bessus while there was an enemy behind him in the Caspian region, and therefore his first movement was to cross the Elber's chain of mountains which separate the South Caspian shores from Parthia, and subdue the lands of the Tapuri and Mardi. The Persian officers who had retreated into these regions submitted, and were received with favor. The life of Nabarzanes was spared. The Greek mercenaries who had found refuge in the Tapurian mountains capitulated. All who had entered the Persian service, before the Sanhedrin of Corinth, had pledged Greece to the cause of Macedon, were released. The rest were compelled to serve in the Macedonian army for the same pay which they had received from Darius. The importance of the well-wooded southern coast of the Caspian was understood by Alexander, and he sent orders to Parmenio to go forth from Ectabana and take possession of the Cadusian territory on the southwestern side of the sea. He himself could not tarry. Having rested a fortnight at Zadracarta and held athletic games, he marched eastward to Susia, a town in the north of Aria, and was met there by Stadabarzanes, governor of Aria, who had made his submission and was confirmed in his satrapy. Here the news arrived that Bessus had assumed the style of great king with the name of Artaxerxes and was wearing his turban erect. Alexander started at once on the road to Bactria. His way would have lain by Merv in the wilds of Central Asia, the beaten ways of traffic remained the same for thousands of years. But he had not gone far when he was overtaken by the news that Stadabarzanes had revolted behind him. There was nothing to be done but to return and to secure the province of Aria. But this province did not stand alone. It would certainly be upheld in its hostility by the neighboring countries of Aracosia and Drangiana, which formed the satrapy of Barzyntes, one of the murderers of Darius. Hurrying back in forced marches with a part of his army, Alexander appeared before Ardokoana, the capital of Aria. In two days, Stadabarzanes galloped away to seek Bessus in Bactria, and his troops who fled to the mountains were pursued and overcome. There was no further resistance, and the conqueror marched southward to Drangiana. His road could hardly be doubtful, the road which leads by Herat into Saistan, and it is probable that Herat is the site of the city which Alexander founded to be capital and stronghold of the new province, Alexandria of the Arians. The submission of Drangiana was made without a blow. The satrap who had fled to the Indians was given up by them and put to death. At Prothasia, the capital of the Drangian land, there befell a tragedy, whereof we know too little to judge the right and the wrongs of the case. It came to Alexander's ears that Philotus, the son of Parmenio, was conspiring against his life. The king called an assembly of the Macedonians, and stated the charges against the general. 
Philotas admitted that he had known of a plot to murder Alexander, and had said nothing about it, but this was only one of the charges against him. The Macedonians, although many of them were ill-content with the developments of their king's policy in the east, found Philotas guilty, and he was pierced by their javelins. The son dead, it seemed dangerous to let the father live, whether he was involved or not in the treasonable designs of Philotas. A messenger was dispatched with all speed to Media, bearing commands to some of the captains of Parmenio's army to put the old general to death. If the guilt of Philotas was assured, and we have no reason to doubt it, we can hardly, so far as Philotas is concerned, blame Alexander for his rigorous measures, which it might have been painful for him to adopt. A crime which might be pardoned in Macedonia could not be dealt gently with in a camp in distant lands, where not only success but safety depended on loyalty and discipline. But the death of Parmenio was an arbitrary act of precaution, against merely suspected disloyalty. There seemed to have been no proofs against him, and there was certainly no trial. In the meantime, Alexander had changed his plans. Instead of retracing his steps and following the route to Bactria, which he had originally intended to take, he resolved to fetch a circle, and marching through Afghanistan, subduing it as he went, he would cross the Hindu Kush mountains, and descend on the plain of the Oxus from the east. First he advanced southwards to secure Sayistan, and the northwestern regions of Baluchistan, then known as Gedrosia. The Ariaspi, a peaceful and friendly people whom the Greeks called benefactors, dwelt in the south of Sayistan. Alexander passed part of the winter among them, and gratified them by a small increase of territory, and made them free, subject to no satrap. The neighboring Gedrosians volunteered their submission, and a Gedrosian satrapy was constituted with its capital at Pura. When spring came, Alexander pushed northeastward up the valley of the Haumand to Kandahar, and in pronouncing the name of Kandahar, we are perhaps pronouncing the name of the great conqueror, for the chief city which he founded in Arikosia was probably on the site of Kandahar, which seems to be a corruption of its name, Alexandria. The way led over the mountains past Ghazni into the valley of the upper waters of the Kabul River, and Alexander came to the foot of the high range of the Hindu Kush. The whole massive complex of mountains which diverge from the roof of the world, dividing southern from central, eastern from western Asia, the Pamirs, the Hindu Kush, and the Himalayas were grouped by the Greeks under the general name of Caucasus. But the Hindu Kush was distinguished by the special name of Peropanesus, while Himalayas were called the Imaos. At the foot of the Hindu Kush he spent the winter and founded another Alexandria to secure the region, somewhere to the north of Kabul. It was distinguished as Alexandria of the Caucasus. While he was in these parts, he learned that Sadi Barzanis was still abroad in Arya, inflaming a rebellion. Some forces were sent to crush him. A battle was fought, and Sadi Barzanis was killed. The crossing of the Caucasus, undertaken in the early spring, was an achievement which, for the difficulties overcome, and the hardship of the cold and want endured, seemed to have fallen little short of Hannibal's passage of the Alps. The soldiers had to content themselves with raw meat, and the herb of Silphian as a substitute for bread. At length they reached Drapsaka, high up on the northern slope, the frontier fortress of Bactria. 
Having rested his way-worn army, Alexander went down by the stronghold of Aornus into the plain and marched through a poor country to Bactra, the chief city of the land, which has preserved its old site, but has changed its name to Bauk. The pretender, Bessus Artaxerxes, had stripped and wasted eastern Bactria up to the foot of the mountains for the purpose of checking the progress of the invading army, but he fled across the Oxus when Alexander drew near, and his native cavalry deserted him. No man withstood the conqueror, and another province was added without a blow to the Macedonian Empire. Alexander lost no time in pursuing the fugitive into Sogdiana. This is a country which lies between the streams of the Oxus and the Jaxartes. It was called Sogdiana from the river Saugd, which flows through the land and, passing near the cities of Samarkand and Bukhara, loses itself in the sands of the desert before it approaches the waters of the Oxus. Bessus had burnt his boats, and when Alexander, after a weary march of two or three days through the hot desert, arrived at the banks of the Oxus, he was forced to transport his army by the primitive vehicle of skins, which the natives of Central Asia then used, and still use today. Alexander's soldiers, however, instead of inflating the sheepskins with air, stuffed them with rushes. They crossed the river at Kilif, where its banks contract to the width of about two-thirds of a mile, and advanced on the road to Marikanda, the chief city of the country, easily recognized as Samarkand. Bessus had no support north of the Oxus. He had some Sogdian allies, at the head of whom were Spitamines and Dataphernes, but these men had no intention of sacrificing their country to the cause of the pretender. Thinking that Alexander's only object was to capture Bessus, and that he would then withdraw from Sogdiana, and fix the Oxus as the northern boundary of his dominion, they sent a message to him offering the surrender of the usurper. The king sent Ptolemy, son of Lagus, with six thousand men to secure Bessus, who was then found in a walled village, deserted by his Sogdian friends. By Alexander's orders he was placed, naked and fettered, on the right side of the road by which the army was marching. Alexander halted as he passed the captive, and asked him why he had seized and murdered Darius, his king and benefactor. Bessus replied that he had acted in concert with other Persian nobles, in the hope of winning the conqueror's favor. He was scourged and sent to Bactra to await his doom. But Alexander did not arrest his march. He had made up his mind to annex Sogdiana. Not the Oxus, but the Jaxartes was to be the northern limit of his empire. The children of the Waste called this river the Tanaeus. It was said that the Greeks were deceived into imagining that it was the same river as the familiar Tanaeus which discharges its waters into the Maotic Lake, and hence regarded it as the boundary between Asia and Europe, and thought that the herdsmen of the north who dwelt beyond it were the Scythians of Europe. But they can hardly have fallen into this air, for they imagine that the Caspian was a gulf of the ocean, and the two airs are inconsistent. Having seized and garrisoned Samarkand, the army pushed on northeastward by the unalterable road which nature has marked out, and occupied seven strongholds which the Sogdians had built as defenses against invaders from the north. The road reached the Jaxartes, where that river issues from the chilly vale of Fergana, and deflects its course to flow through the steppes. It was a point of the highest importance, for Fergana forms the vestibule of the great gate of communication between southwestern Asia and China. The pass over the Tian Shan mountains 
which descends on the other side into the land of Kashgar. Here Alexander, with strategic insight, resolved to fix the limit of his empire, and on the banks of the river he founded a new city, which is known as Alexandria the Ultimate. There is no doubt about the situation. It is the later Kuljend. The conqueror, judging from the ease with which he had come and conquered Aracosia and Bactria, seems not to have conceived that it might be otherwise beyond the Oxus. But the chiefs of Sogdiana were not as the Persian grandees. They were ready to dare greatly for their freedom against the European invader. As he was designing his new city, Alexander received the news that the land was up in arms behind him. Spitamenes was the leader of the movement, and it was supported by Axiartes and other leading Sogdians. The few Macedonian soldiers left in the seven strongholds had been overpowered, and the garrison of Samarcand was besieged in the citadel. A message had gone forth into the western wastes, and the Masagete and other Scythian tribes were flocking to drive out the intruder. It was a dangerous moment for Alexander. He first returned to recover the fortresses, and in two days he had taken and burned five of them. Chiropolis, the largest and strongest, caused more trouble, but Alexander, with a few companions, contrived to creep under the wall by the bed of a dry stream, and threw open a gate to the troops. The resistance of the inhabitants was furious, and the king was wounded in the melee. The fall of Chiropolis was followed by the capitulation of the seventh town, and the remnant of the indwellers of all these places were led in chains to take part in peopling the new Alexandria. The next task should have been the relief of Samarcand, but Alexander found himself confronted by a new danger, and could send only a few thousand troops to succor the besieged garrison. The herdsmen of the north were pouring down to the banks of the Jaxartes, ready to cross the stream and harass the Macedonians in the rear. It was impossible to move until they had been repelled and the passage of the river secured. The walls of Alexandria were hastily constructed of unburnt clay, and the place made fit for habitation in the short space of twenty days. Meanwhile, the northern bank was lined by the noisy and jeering hordes of the barbarians, and Alexander determined to cross the river. The offerings were not favorable. They betokened, said the seer, personal danger to the king, but Alexander would be mocked no longer. Bringing up his missile engines to the shore, he dismayed the shepherds, who, when stones and darts began to fall among them from such a distance, and unhorsed one of their champions, retreated some distance from the bank. The army seized the moment to cross. The Scythians were routed and Alexander, at the head of his cavalry, pursued them far into the steppes. Parched by the intense summer heat, the king was tempted to drink of the foul water of the desert, and he fell dangerously ill. Thus was the presage of his offerings fulfilled. Luckily, Alexander soon recovered, for ill tidings came from the south. When the relieving force approached Maraconda, Spitamenes had fled westward to the sound Spitamenes had fled westward to the town of Sogdiana, which probably answers to Bukhara. The Macedonians marched after him, hoping to drive him utterly out of the land, but they were indiscreet, and the whole detachment was cut off. Learning of this disaster, Alexander hurried to Samarcand with cavalry and light troops, covering the distance, it is said, in three days, a forced march of between fifty and sixty miles a day, which seems almost impossible for foot soldiers however lightly equipped, in the heat of a Sogdian summer. 
At his coming, Spitamines, who had returned to the siege of Samarcand, again darted westward, and Alexander followed in pursuit. Visiting the spot where the unlucky corpse had been cut down on the banks of the Sogd, the king buried the dead. Then, crossing the river, he pursued the fugitive chieftain and his Scythian allies to the limits of the waste. He swept on to Sogdiana, ravaging the land, and marching southwestward to the Oxus, he crossed into western Bactria and spent the winter at Zariaspa. The Bactrian cities of Zariaspa and Bactra bore somewhat the same relation to one another as the Sogdian cities of Maracanda and Sogdiana. At Zariaspa, Bessus was formally tried for the murder of Darius, and was condemned to have his nose and ears cut off, and to be taken to Ectabana to die on the cross. The Greeks, like ourselves, regarded mutilation as a barbarous punishment, and it is not pleasant to find Alexander violating this sentiment. But the adoption of Oriental punishments in dealing with Orientals must be judged along with the adoption of other Oriental customs. Every conqueror of an alien race finds himself in a grave embarrassment. Is he to offend his ideals and fall away from his convictions by acquiescing in outlandish usages antagonistic to his own? Or is he, stiff-necked and inflexibly true to his principles of his own civilization, to remain out of touch with his new subjects? Is he to adopt the policy which will be most effective in administering the conquered land, or is he to impose a policy which works and is approved of in his home country, but may be useless or fatal elsewhere. Alexander did not adopt the second method. It was the task of his life to spread Greek civilization in the East, but he saw that this could not be done by an outsider, a general of Hellas, or a Basileus of Macedonia. He must meet the Orientals on their own ground. He must become their king in their own way. The surest means of planting Hellenism in their midst was to begin by taking account sympathetically of their prejudices. Alexander therefore assumed the state of great king, surrounded himself with eastern forms of pomp, exacted self-abasement in his presence from oriental subjects, and adopted the maxim that the king's person was divine. He was the successor of Darius, and he regarded the murder of that monarch as a crime touching himself insomuch as it was a crime against royalty. It was therefore an act of deliberate policy that he punished the kingslayer in eastern fashion as an impressive example to his eastern subjects. The misfortune was that Alexander's assumption of oriental state and the favor which he showed to the Persians was highly unpopular with the Macedonians. It was hard always to preserve a double face, one for his companions, the other for his Persian ministers. Nor was it Alexander's policy to maintain this difference forever. He hoped ultimately to secure uniformity in the relations of Macedonians and Persians to their common king. Meanwhile, in the intervals of rest between military operations, discontent smoldered among the Macedonians. Though they were attached to their king, and proud of the conquests which they had helped him to achieve, they felt that he was no longer the same to them as when he had led them to victory at the Granicus. His exaltation over obescent Orientals had changed him, and the execution of his trusted general Parmenio was felt to be significant of the change. These feelings of discontent accidentally found a mouthpiece about this time. Rebellious movements in Sogdiana brought Alexander over the Oxus again before the winter was over, 
and he spent some time at Samarcand. One of the most unfortunate consequences of the long protracted sojourn in the regions of the Oxus was the increase of drunkenness in the army. The excessively dry atmosphere in summer produces an intolerable and frequent thirst, and it was inevitable that the Macedonians should slake it by wine, the strong wine of the country, if they would not sicken themselves by the brackish springs of the desert or the noisome water of the towns. Alexander's potations became deep and habitual from this time forth. One night in the fortress of Samarcand, the carouse lasted far into the night. Greek men of letters who accompanied the army sang the praises of Alexander, exalting him above the Dioscuri, whose feast he was celebrating on this day. Clytus, his foster brother, flushed with wine, suddenly sprang up to denounce the blasphemy, and once he had begun, the current of his feelings swept him on into a denunciation and disparagement of Alexander. It was to the Macedonians, he said, to men like Parmenio and Philotus, that Alexander owed his victories. He himself had saved Alexander's life at the Granicus. These were the two sharpest stings, and they stirred Alexander's blood to fury. He started to his feet and called in Macedonian for his hypastus. None obeyed his drunken orders. Ptolemy and the other banqueters forced Clytus out of the hall, while others tried to restrain the king. But presently Clytus made his way back, and shouted from the doorway some insulting verses of Euripides, signifying that the army does the work, and the general reaps the glory. The king leapt up, snatched a spear from the hand of a guardsman, and rushed upon his foster brother. Drunk though he was, the aim was sure. Clytus sunk dead to the ground. An agony of remorse followed. For three days the murderer lay in his tent, without sleep or food, cursing himself as the assassin of his friends. The army sympathized with his grief. They tried the dead man, and resolved that he had been justly slain. The tragedy was attributed to the anger of Dionysus, because the day was his festival, and the Dioscuri had been celebrated instead. The tragic issue of this miserable drunken brawl is a lurid spot in Alexander's life but it was a slight matter compared to the act which is said to have marked his invasion of Sogdiana. When we saw him first cross the Oxus in pursuit of Bessus, we did not pause to witness his treatment of a remarkable town which lay on his way. The Brachidae, who had charge of the temple and oracle of Apollo, twenty miles from Miletus, are charged with having betrayed the treasures of the sanctuary. Their lives were not safe from the anger of the Milesians, and Xerxes transported them into Central Asia, where no Greek vengeance could pursue them. They were established in Sogdiana, not far from the place where Alexander crossed, a solitary little settlement, which, though severed, long, though severed so long from Hellas, preserved its Greek religion and Greek customs, and had not forgotten the Greek speech. It is easy to imagine what excitement was stirred there by the coming of a Greek army, the folk came forth joyously to bid Alexander welcome, and to offer him their fealty. But Alexander remembered only one thing. The ancestors of this people had committed a heinous crime against Apollo, and had sided with Persia against Greece. That crime had never been forgotten by the men of Miletus, and the king called upon the Milesians in his army to pronounce sentence upon the Brancandi. The Milesians could not agree, and Alexander himself decided the fate of the town. 
having surrounded it with a cordon of soldiers, he caused all the inhabitants to be massacred, and the place to be utterly demolished. Few of the children, of the children's children, of the original transgressors, could still have been alive. Many of the victims belonged to the fifth degree of descent. We cannot imagine a fouler enforcement of the savage principle that the crimes of the fathers should be visited to distant generations. It is small wonder that Ptolemy and Aristobulus, if the story is true, omitted it from their records of the campaigns of their king. There are other deeds of Alexander which cannot be excused, but there is none so black, none so cruel as the murder of the Brancandi, none for which some extenuating circumstances cannot be urged. There were more hostilities in western Bactria and western Sogdiana, until at last, overawed by Alexander's success, the Scythians, in order to win his favor, slew Spitamines. With this chieftain, the resistance expired. It only remained to reduce the rugged southeastern regions of Sogdiana, which were called Paratycini. The Sogdian rock, which commands the pass into these regions, was occupied by Oxyartes, and a band of Macedonian soldiers captured it by an audacious night climb. Among the captives was Roxanne, the daughter of Oxyartes, and the love of Alexander, who had always been indifferent to women, was attracted by the beauty and the manners of the Sogdian maiden. It was characteristic of him that, notwithstanding the adverse comment which such a condescension would excite among the proud Macedonians, he resolved to make her his wife, and on his return to Bactria, after subjugating other fortresses in Paratycini, he divided a loaf of bread with his bride according to the fashion of the country, and celebrated the nuptials. There was policy in his marriage as well as inclination. It was symbolic of the union of Asia and Europe, of the breaking down of the barrier between Barbarian and Hellene, and of Alexander's position as an Oriental king. About this time an attempt seems to have been made to render uniform the court ceremonial. The Persian nobles were not well pleased that, whereas they were compelled to abase themselves to the ground before the divinity of the king, the Macedonians and Greeks were excused from the obeisance. Most of the Greeks would have been pliant enough, but there was one prominent man of letters who stood against the usage, and drew upon himself displeasure by the utterance of bold truths. This was Callisthenes, a nephew of Aristotle. He was composing a history of the campaigns of Alexander, whose exploits he ungrudgingly lauded. He had joined the army, he used to say, to make him famous, not to win fame himself. It is related that Hephaestion and a number of others arranged a plan for surprising the king's guests at a banquet into making the obeisance. Alexander, raising his golden cup, drank to each guest in order, first to some of those who were privy to the plan. Each arose and prostrated himself, and was then kissed by the king. Callisthenes, when his turn came, drained the cup and went to receive the kiss without doing the obeisance. Alexander would not kiss him, and he turned away, saying, I go the poorer by a kiss. Incidents of this kind created a coolness between the king and his historian. One of the duties of Callisthenes and the other philosophers and literary men who accompanied Alexander's progress was to educate the pages, the noble Macedonian youths who attended on the king's person, and over some of these Callisthenes had great influence. One day, at a boar hunt, a page named Hermolaus committed the indiscretion of forestalling the king in slaying the beast, and for this breach of etiquette he was flogged and deprived of his horse. 
smarting under the dishonor, Hermolaus plotted with some of his comrades to slay Alexander in his sleep. But on the appointed night, Alexander sat up, carousing till dawn, and on the next day the plot was betrayed. The conspirators were arrested and put to death by the sentence of the whole army. Callisthenes was also handfasted on the charge of being an accomplice, and was afterwards hanged. Hermolaus was indeed one of his warmest admirers, but it is not clear what the evidence against the historian was. On the one hand, Ptolemy and Aristobulus asserted independently that the pages declared under torture that the Callisthenes had incited them. On the other hand, Alexander is said to have stated in a letter that the torture had failed to elicit the name of any accomplice. The deeper cause may be that Alexander suspected Callisthenes as an agent of the anti-Macedonian party in Greece. Before the end of summer, Alexander bade farewell to Bactria and set forth to the conquest of India. Three years had passed since the death of Darius, three unique years in the annals of the world. In that time, the western conqueror, disarranging the cycles of Asiatic history, had subdued Afghanistan and cast his yoke over the herdsmen of the north as far as the river Jaxartes. He was the first and last western conqueror of Afghanistan. He was the first but not the last invader. He was the first European invader and conqueror of the regions beyond the Oxus, anticipating by more than two thousand years the conquests which had been achieved by a European power within the memory of the present generation. His next enterprise forestalled our own conquest of northwestern India, but England made her conquests from the south, Russia hers from the north. Alexander was the only European conqueror who marched straight from the west to the Indus and the Oxus. The Macedonian monarch's work in Bactria and Sogdiana was an unavoidable sequel of his succession to the Persian Empire. He had to set up a barrier against the unsettled races of the waste, who were a perpetual menace to the civilizations of the south. He founded a number of settlements in these regions, not only for the purpose of military garrisons, but also probably with the hope of gradually training the herdsmen to more settled ways of life. If so, it was a vain hope. History has shown that there was only one means of forcing the shepherd races to become reluctant tillers of the soil, not until they had been encompassed on all sides by civilization and driven within a narrow geographical area will they adopt, under the stress of necessity, the regular and laborious life of agriculture. The iron pressure of Russia's embrace is gradually narrowing the grounds of the nomads in Central Asia. In the days of Alexander they had endless space behind them, and an indefinite future before them. End of chapter 18, part 1